You know, for the longest time, I've heard the name Diana Muldaur, and that's how I've heard it pronounced, but I looked up, I actually couldn't find someone saying her name in a modern interview, other than the way I mentioned it, and so I was like, well, that's weird, because I had some people telling me it was off, so I actually found another person whose name also happened to be Moldar, and they pronounced it Moldar. I don't know. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can, guys. It's not like I can ask her. <sighs> Which really sucks. Because she was awesome. I actually do like her legitimately as an actress. And uh, I think that's part of why I did actually like Pulaski. Not, not counting the first episode. That one was the thing. But I'm getting way off topic. This episode was put out by John Kingsbridge? And he was pretty unhappy about the way uh, Roddenberry rewrote it, which is funny because I was like, okay, you know, that's normal. But then I looked into it. I don't want to start anything here, but Roddenberry specifically changed it so that it seemed like they went to oblivion after they died rather than to some kind of afterlife. Now, I want to be clear. It's not like they were like, I will meet you again in heaven. It was really vague. Like, you know, uh, you know oblivion does not... Frighten Me is the line that Roddenberry put in, whereas the line that was originally written was something closer to what we hear immediately after that, which was, we will be together forever. This was something that was a big deal for the writer in particular, and no judgment, by the way. Really, if it matters enough to you to make sure that anything you write is a specific thing or a way, then do that. I mean, I'm like that. Not about afterlife or anything, but for example, if you asked me to write something for, say, Game of Thrones, I'd probably just say no right off the bat, because there's certain things that I just don't want to put my pen to paper for, right? There's certain things I don't want to be associated with writing. So, okay, I'm with that. Um, near as I can tell, though, that's it. Like, this is a very minor rewrite. In fact, I'm not even 100% sure why it was in the episode. We do know that the executives wanted there to be uh, less cerebral, you know, simplister func sim more simplistic function. And, I mean, obviously, uh, Diana, I'm just going to call her Diana, let's make that nice and simple, is actually really good. She is effectively the guest star of this episode. There's not even effectively, she is the guest star of this episode, and she plays two characters, and she does a really good job with both of them, and she distinguishes them from each other quite well. So, that's a plus. We also have Nimoy playing someone who is evil, and Kirk, excuse me, Shatner, playing someone who is kind of the the opposite? Nah, let's go with inverse. I think inverse works here. Of what he usually is an op obstacle towards. Is, is an obst uh, um, opposition, there we go, in what he is usually an obst opposition towards. Because we have a godlike alien, because then they have mental powers, and they advanced, super advanced, and years ago, and blah, blah, blah. I've heard all this a dozen times at least. This literally goes back to both pilots of this show. I get it. Mind powers. Okay, moving on. But in you, almost every case, it's this big, horrible, evil thing. But Sargon's actually a legitimately cool person. In fact, right off the front here, I want to mention my favorite thing about this episode, other than you know, the, the woman formerly known as Moldauer. And that would be the fact that we see three perspectives on having supreme power, which actually I kind of like. We have the benevolent, we have the normal, and we have the malevolent. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rush through the episode here. We find out that they are hundreds of light years out from where anyone has ever been, which is actually kind of cool. You know, the idea that they are this far out is actually pretty legit and kind of neat. 
it helps to distinguish the idea that the Enterprise, e even though they'll get involved in political matters or conflicts with the Klingons or Romulans or whatever else, they do also do some exploring and get way further out than anyone else ever has. It's something that Enterprise and TOS both do. I think TOS does it a little bit better and a little bit worse at the same time, but I suppose that's just the nature of it, isn't it? We also find out that if I die, then all mankind must perish. Um, so that sounds a lot like a threat, right? Well, that's the dun-dun-dun cut to commercial. There's three of those in this episode. And while I like this episode quite a bit, those three dun-dun-duns, every single one of them drags the episode down for me because it's like, what? Sargon is the benevolent one. He's not threatening mankind. He doesn't even that meta he, he doesn't even mean that metaphorically. It's not like the death of me will mean the death of your people. He's just like the closest thing I could come to is if I'm not there to guide you people, it's gonna suck. No, it's only there to try and be like, oh my god, it's this big thing. No, it's okay, it's nothing. Just like every other pre-commercial dun dun dun. So then Anne Mulhall shows up. Naturally, we have the sexy woman music for her, which, I mean, Diana Moldor is a very attractive woman. Even when she was older, she was a very attractive woman. No, the point is that they have to have the sexy music, and then they have the super tech, and this is, this is the moment where I realized I'm watching a D&D &D campaign. No, really. The GM's like, okay, so you come to this planet, and there's a signal coming in, and one of the players is like, wait, 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 we're way out here. How are we going to, they're just beaming it into your consciousness. Well, okay. Well, I need to... So they want you to beam down in, inside the planet. And, and one of the players is like, wait, 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 wait. There's like hundreds of miles of rock there. How can we possibly get down there? And the GM's like, look, they're just going to... They're, they're going to beam you down with their technology, okay? Okay. And then, like, it, <laughs> this just keeps happening as the GM just keeps having to come up with some excuse for how they just manage it. You'll notice that the, the mind powers that they demonstrate don't even show up until, like, the last act of the entire episode. So up until now... The implication is, is, as presented, is that while they're super smart, they're not super powerful, which actually was a take I really liked until they made them super powerful, so that sucks, but I'm getting off topic. So they have super tech and they go down. Okay, cool. Um, they mention, yes, we know you have been through the nuclear harvest, but you have yet to face your ultimate crisis. By the way, I want to give praise for James Doohan, who is the person who voices Sargon. He's effectively the other guest star. He does a pretty good job of it. Anywho, <clears throat> the ultimate crisis. Where do I go with this? Do I make a DC joke? Do I reference the Borg? How about the Q? Because that's a thing. How about the fact that Kirk is the one perfect entity that the entire universe has been crafted to build? If you think I'm making that up, look in the books. It's not canon, obviously, but there's a whole series about that. Anyways. So they're like, okay, fine. So they talk about how they super evolved and Whatever. <laughs> I just... I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hash this point on. I... I don't think I ever realized how many super mental-powered beings were in TOS. I mean, I've always accepted that psychics exist in Star Trek, because they do. we got Betazoids and we got Vulcans. But if you pay attention to TNG and DS9 and Voyager and Enterprise, psychics are... The, the exception or the rarity, or it's this one or two or three species. In TOS, we run into these things every other week. It's just kind of weird. I'm not complaining per se, I'm just confused. 
Who had such a thing for mind powers back in the day? Was that just in vogue in the late 60s? I actually don't know. Because I wasn't alive then yet. So it's just kind of a weird thing. I, I suppose that's how that works. I mean, it's probably one of the reasons why, for example, Voyager hammered the, the time travel thing so often. Although, near as I can tell, that was actually directed because of Rick Berman, because he thought time travel stories were popular, so he wanted more time travel stories, but I, I, I don't know. Either way, they have mental powers, and now we... What do you want from us? We want to take your bodies! Dun, dun, dun! No, he's just kidding. It's only temporary. That's our second commercial dun, dun, dun here. So they want to build robots. Okay. Later on, they lament that those robots will not be able to feel. Maybe uh, with their amazing, ridiculous super tech that can build ship engines the size of walnuts, maybe they should decide to go over to the iMud planet with the Takan outpost and be like, hey, guys, can you build us some super mega androids that'll last 500,000 years? No? No one's going to bring this up? Okay. No, instead, they're just like, we must build robots. Okay. And why, why can't we just build them for you? This is far beyond your pathetic ability. Okay, got it. So these are probably the same people who made The Guardian Forever, too, because they apparently talk the same way. Even the nice guy talks that way. <sighs> this then leads to probably the best scene in the episode, the meeting. All of them sit down and debate the offer. What's interesting is this isn't really a, a typical episode. It doesn't have a dilemma, not really. It doesn't have a mystery. Everything's solved very quickly and early. There's not really a threat to escape in the strictest sense of the word. So, because, um, what's his stupid name? Hanok is on the back foot the entire episode, constantly being outplayed and outmaneuvered by everyone. He's not a threat. He's a joke. So what's the point of this episode? Well, this is a thinker episode. I don't actually know if I've brought this up before. It's an episode that's there to present an idea and just kind of present it and look at it from different angles. That's one of the reasons I mentioned the three perspectives earlier. So as they're all sitting and talking and debating, you could see how this kind of flourishes full fold within this scene. Because they're being offered to temporarily damage their bodies and advocate, uh, not advocate, um, abdicate, there we go, their bodies temporarily in order to give these people the ability to make their own bodies and in the, the exchange for that, there's the possibility of greater technological gain down the line. Nothing concrete. There's no contract here. What I like about this is three things. First of all, everyone has different thoughts on it. Even the people who are on the same side are on the same side for different reasons. Also, it's a very human scene. And I, as I've mentioned before, Diana starts with an M, does an excellent job with her character and really portrays someone who you know feels like she's actually a character rather than just a piece of cardboard. So that's nice. Maybe my standards are just slipping out of frickin' no. But then we have the fact that McCoy is actually very against this. And this is great. This is my favorite part right here. They demand consensus. Kirk flat out says, I can order this. I can make this happen, but I'm not gonna. We have to have 100% consensus to go forward with this. If we, all, if we say no, then we're leaving and they'll wait for the next ship, just like Sargon said. I really like that. I, hmm, I'm a big believer in the concept of chain of command. I am. And, I, and I, part of the reason for that is because of the crisis moment. When you have seconds to react, one mind can look at that and say this, and make that command decision, which will hopefully be right, 
and then be able to get out the orders and act and react appropriately to it, right? That's the the value of autocracy, for lack of a better way to put it. But the problem is that value is diminished the larger and the more long-term the case is. Let me Let me rephrase this a little bit. If you and your family and friends, everyone close to you, were offered the chance, Vulcans show up and they say, hey, we're, we're taking a few people off to live off planet. J just as kind of a, a cultural exchange thing. We've discovered humans, you've discovered us. Let's do a cultural exchange thing. You're being offered this choice. And this is a really big deal and a very big game changer, which may just, you may never be back home, right? So you don't make that decision in a vacuum, right? I mean, I, I know this doesn't apply to a lot of you, but I imagine at least some of you kind of get the idea of where I'm going with this. This is such a big choice and a big game changer for you and your life that you don't want to make this decision by yourself. You want buy-in. You want other voices and other opinions. And especially since they're going to be coming with you, or at least hopefully coming with you, well then, if we're going, we're all going, which means we need that kind of consensus thing. And you see how this, this kind of ties in. This is a terrible analogy, and I apologize. It's the best I could come up with off the top of my head. So they all debate it, and they all argue it. And then Kurt gives a speech, which I actually bothered to write down, because it's a really good speech. A credit to the writer, Mr. Uh, Kirk uh, Kingsbridge here. They used to say if man could fly, he'd have wings. But he did fly. He discovered he had to. Do you wish the first Apollo mission hadn't reached the moon? Or that we hadn't gone on to Mars? Or the nearest star? That's like saying you wish that you still operated with scalpels and sewed your patients up with catgut like your great-great-great-great-grandfather used to. I am in command. I could order this. But I'm not. Because Dr. McCoy is right in pointing out the enormous danger, potential danger in any contact with life and intelligence as fantastically advanced as this. But I must point out the possibilities, the potential for knowledge and advancement is equally great. Risk. Risk is our business. That's what this starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. It's a good speech. It reminds me of one of my favorite TNG speeches, which was actually given by Q over in Q Who. I forget the whole wording right now, but you probably know the one I'm talking about. I, I, someone's probably going to post it in the comments below. You know, there are, there are wondrous things out here to satiate the tastes, both subtle and gross. But it's not for the timid. I admit that's a little bit of my own mentality seeping in there, but that's how that works, isn't it? I like that idea. And I like that the reason they decided to go ahead with this is because of that refusal to not take the risk. You see what I mean about being a thinker episode, about presenting an idea? Then, of course, everything goes wrong. <laughs> Early on, Hennock gives, gives away the fact that he's a bad guy. Ignoring the fact that Leonard Nimoy does a surprisingly good job of playing a villain, although anybody who's seen Transformers wouldn't be surprised by that, the fact is, one of the first things he mentions is, this body's incredible. I can, I'm stronger and faster and smarter. This is great. I'm surprised the Vulcans haven't conquered you. Use this in total contrast to what the other two's response, the Lysra and, or, the Lissa, excuse me, the Lissa and Sargon, whose response is, oh, I can breathe again. I can feel again. It's you, my husband. Hug, close, kiss. Shatner gets to kiss Diana Moldauer whatever her name is, three times in this episode. I am a little bit envious. I'm going to be honest about that. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, 
early signs that he's evil. He also mentions the tactical advantages. And I'm like, okay, so they're trying to give it away early. That makes sense. And then literally the very next scene is him revealing his evil intent to kill Sargon. <sighs> okay. <laughs> he then uses his theatrics to try and push uh, Thalissa into being on his side. I want to talk about that really quick, but first I got to complain one more time and then we'll talk because, oh my god, Kirk's dead! Dun dun dun! That's the third one. That's, that's the third dun dun dun. And it's just as stupid as the other two. That's not true. It's actually, it's actually, it's, it's the only one I'm willing to tolerate. I take that back. Because Kirk being dead is actually a reasonably strong plot point and part of the overall reveal of how they're outmaneuvering Henock. So, okay. It's the first two that are fake-outs and stupid and dumb, and I hate, so... I'll give you that one episode. Anywho. <clears throat> Hanok pushes this agenda. You know, do you really want to be in a cold machine? Do you really want to put up with this? Come on. And he just kind of pushes this agenda in several scenes quietly in the background until finally she flat-out confronts him and says, You never plan to leave that body. And he's like, Well, no, of course not. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> there you go. There's the mechanical body. The cold, empty shell. Have fun with that. This then leads to her approaching McCoy. I have to mention the irony of the fact that a, a woman played by Diana Moldauer... Moldauer? Whatever. <laughs> by Miss M is someone who has significant contact with Dr. McCoy, the actor she would later be told to emulate in TNG. Just amusing. Anyways, anyways. So she then, you know, confronts him. And she's so open about it. Okay, here's the deal. I'll show you how to res your captain, okay? But in exchange, you don't tell anyone that I'm keeping this body. Now, you might think, that's horrible and evil. Well, no. What that is is normal. The normal mind isn't really inclined particularly towards heroic uh, good or vitriolic evil. Those are both extremes, and if we're being honest with ourselves, outliers. They're, they're the exceptions. Most people sit in the middle of that bracket. They may lean one direction or another, and how far and how hard they lean depend on the individual circumstances. This is actually done quite brilliantly in this following scene. She's not evil, she just really wants to keep this body. And so she's willing to offer something in exchange for it. McCoy, of course, says, no, that's stupid. I'm not going along with that. And she gets upset and starts to torture him and then stops herself. Again, not evil. Because the very act of torturing him bothers her as it would any normal person. You see? The moment they're actually confronted with the reality, not merely the thought or the p potential, the, the normal mind approaches something like that and goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. You notice the way she, she ceases this is she actually says in an almost trembling tone, stop. Like she's, as she's begging the torture to stop because she can't take it. Huh? I love this. I love this idea. I love this perspective. Hanok is, of course, purely interested in himself. All he cares about is his own agenda and his own push, and he's willing to do whatever he wants in order to maintain that. We don't know his long-term goals, and we don't care. Sargon is trying to do the hands-off, but still, I'm here just in case, benevolence of, you know, okay, you have, we'll take care of this, we'll take care of this, we'll make sure Kirk's okay, we'll make sure Spock's okay. You know, I would not allow you to sacrifice someone close to you just to stop our problem. That's that benevolence, that's that heroic level of good that I mentioned earlier. 
But I love her perspective in the middle, and not just because she's act, vo- acted by an actress who I can't pronounce her name. <clears throat> I'm just going to say Moldauer. She's going to show up in the future, too. Is that cool? Cool. All right. And then I get 50 people in, in comments saying not cool. This, so Hanok goes to the bridge, and, and he is straight up a Sith Lord. Like, copy-paste. If not for the fact that the Sith haven't been invented yet and wouldn't be for... God, almost 15 years after this. Don't say A New Hope. What he does is what I call a, a typical Sith, a.k.a. a stupid Sith. And the very concept of stupid Sith didn't exist until the EU. So, Anyways, he pulls the stupid Sith. He goes into the bridge and says, Hey, I have power to, to torture and kill and affect minds. You're all going to do what I say. Because that's how that works. You know, typical Congress. Eh, cool, cool. It's only the fact that they approach him and they're like, hey, and then, you know, they work around it and there's Chapel Head, Spock Insider. Don't, don't think about that too much. I, and then we have one last kiss. Damn it, Shatner. <laughs> what I actually like about it, as, as funny as this may sound, is they have this big loving embrace because both actors are acting as different characters and then there's, like, someone off stage makes a sound or whatever, notifies them, and then both of them visibly shift and their entire body language changes and they're like, oh. And there's just this weird awkwardness as they realize they're embracing. I, I like that. It's it's good. This is a good episode. I am surprised at how good it is. It's a thinker piece and frankly there's not a lot of thinker pieces in TOS, especially not ones that don't really have some kind of associated thing with them. You'll notice there wasn't even a fight scene this week. I, I know there have been a few episodes which haven't had fights, and I failed to comment on them, and that's my fault. But this one really caught me on that one. Either way, I do hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I am very much looking forward to yours. And I will see you next time.